we stand here on this earth, up to our eyebrows and the reality of living life in this broken place, when the difficulty and the pain and the suffering comes crashing down on our shoulders. It's hard for us to imagine that there's anything else. But we are so thankful for the hope that your word gives us that one day, one day we will stand in your presence and there will be nothing but your glory surrounding us. There will be nothing but gratitude and worship to you, the Almighty, the Creator, the Lord of this universe, the God of this world in whom all things exist. Father, would you give us today the ability for these next few moments to leave everything else outside. Leave everything else that weighs us down. Leave that over there and help us to see you today in all of your glory. Help us to hear the truth of your word by your Holy Spirit so clearly that it feels like you're speaking directly into our ears. That's what we long for, Father. That's what we need. For we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. That is where our future is. That is where our hope lies. We ask that you would clarify the truth to us today, Father, so that we might live in these ensuing weeks and months and years in a way that honors and glorifies you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. I got to talk to Joe about doing that song right before I'm supposed to get up and speak. And then again, what better way to come before God's word than to understand who he really is and what we have to look forward to. Well, I need to give you guys a little bit of a history lesson because some of you are confused. I was born on July 7th, 1970 in Bangor, Maine. I am a citizen of the United States of America. I am American. I know some of you are very confused. Many of you think I am from Canada. I am not. I am an American. I understand, though, because there are some contributing factors. My wife is Canadian. My mother is Canadian. I lived in Canada for 11 years, but I am American. My father is American. My brothers are American. When I was 12 years old, we were preparing, our family was preparing to move to New Brunswick, and my parents had to do a ton of paperwork because as citizens 
of the United States of America, my dad and my brothers and I, were only allowed to be in Canada if we had special visas, special paperwork that said we were allowed to be there. Now, my mother didn't need this paperwork because she was a Canadian citizen. She is a Canadian citizen. She was just going home. And it was at that point in my life, even at 12 years old, that I began to understand that there is a difference between being a citizen and just being a resident. Okay? Now, my wife has a little special card, and I remind her of it often. She is a resident alien. That's what her card says. I, I, just, I just read the facts. You see, a citizen has a permanence, a permanent spot where certain rights that never go away, they're yours for as long as you live. A resident's rights are temporary. They could end. Tim and Pam are Canadian citizens, but they too are resident aliens of our great country. And those rights could end at any point that could be revoked. And they would no longer have a place because a resident does not have that permanence. You can stay a long time, you can do a lot of things, but you're still not a citizen. This morning we're going to start a new series. Over the next 15 weeks we're going to, we're going to go through the book of Philippians. And we're calling our series Citizens of Heaven. Because when Paul wrote this book a couple of thousand years ago, he was trying to encourage these new believers in the city of Philippi, he was trying to encourage them with the fact that while God had called them to live on this earth and given them responsibilities and things that he wanted them to carry out where they were, that ultimately, ultimately, their citizenship was in heaven. And of course, as we walk through that together, we're going to see that the same is true for us. You see, citizenship was a very big deal in the ancient city of Philippi. Uh, how many people know where the country of Greece is? Okay, the rest of you, have you heard of Greece? It's a country in Eastern Europe. In fact, it's almost as far east as you can go in Europe before you go into Asia. If you look on your map, everybody knows where the boot is, right? Italy, the boot, okay, we learned that in third grade, most recognizable country in the world. Well, just to the east of that is Greece, and just on the other side of Greece is Turkey. Now, I know you all know where Turkey is because that's where Holly is, okay? So Greece is right in between there, and Philippi, it was an ancient city in the country of what is now Greece, and it was named after Alexander the Great's father. His name was King Philip, and they named the city after him. In 42 B.C., 42 years before Christ was born, Antonio and Octavian won a decisive battle in the city of Philippi, and that ushered in the Roman Empire. If some of, some of you look like it's been a long time since you picked up a history book, but if you can remember back then and you studied the Roman Empire... When Antonio and Octavian won this victory in 42 B.C., that brought in the Roman Empire. 
you watch it on movies, if you ever watch Gladiator or Ben-Hur or something like that, the Roman Empire, it started right when this battle was fought and won in the city of Philippi. So to commemorate their victory, Antonio and Octavian granted the city of Philippi full status as a Roman colony. Now I know that's fascinating to you and you're just so thankful that I shared it with you, but it does matter. It is important because what that meant was the people in the city of Philippi were not just slaves of the Roman Empire. That made them, guess, citizens of the Roman Empire. So citizenship was very important in Philippi. They were Romans. They weren't conquered. They were Romans. And Philippi was very proud of that status. Now, almost 100 years later in 51 AD, Paul and Silas got to Philippi. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 16. And in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas shared Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel with Lydia and some of her friends down by the river where they were praying. And Lydia and some of her household got saved. And then Paul and Silas went into the middle of the city and they saw this slave girl that was, that was telling fortunes and her handlers were making all kinds of money. They were using her. And they delivered the slave girl. She was possessed by an evil spirit. And they delivered her. And she was wonderfully saved. And her handlers were very upset. And there was a big riot in the city. And they threw Paul and Silas in jail. They beat them and they threw them into prison. And at midnight, they were singing hymns in the prison. Paul and Silas were. Maybe some of you know this story. And at midnight, there was an earthquake. And their chains fell off. And the doors opened. And the jailer was about to take his own life because he thought all of the prisoners had escaped. And they said, no, don't do that. We're all right here. And the jailer came to them, Acts 16, 31. And he said, sirs, what do I have to do to be saved? And the jailer took Paul and Silas to his house and he bandaged their wounds, and while he was doing that, they shared the gospel with the jailer's whole household, and his whole household got saved. And a church was born from Lydia's household, and this little slave girl, and the jailer's household, and there was such an uproar in the city, the gospel was transforming people's lives, and it was throwing everyone off that they kicked Paul and Silas out of the city. It wasn't easy to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in first century Philippi. And by the way, it's not easy to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in 21st century America either. And as we look through this book, we are going to see that God has called us to embrace what he has put in front of us. He's called us to trust him, to serve him, because we are citizens of heaven and because we are empowered by his grace he has given us a task while we were here. What he wants us to understand is that we are on a journey to our final destination. I don't know about you, but almost every day at some point, I say to myself, man, am I glad this isn't all there is. Man, am I glad that there's something else to look forward to. And that's what Paul's going to talk to us about here. He's going to give us 15 things. Don't worry, we're not going to talk about all 15 of them today, but 15 things that we must do if we are going to be honoring to God as citizens of heaven in this world. The first one we're going to look at today 
and it's in the first chapter of Philippians 11, the first 11, or Philippians 1, I'm sorry, the first 11 verses. He encourages us to pray for the church. That's the command. Let's look at it. First, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just very quickly, I want you to notice there that he calls himself and and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. The word is literally slave. That's what he's saying. Slaves of Jesus Christ. Now, that would have captured their attention right off the bat. Now, this is the church. This is the church at Philippi. This is about 10 years after Paul and Silas had been there. So I'm guessing that probably Lydia is still there. Some of her uh, household and family, that little slave girl that got saved in the marketplace, maybe she was grown up, a young lady with a family, the jailer and probably some of his family were still around. And he says, I want you to understand that we're servants, we're slaves of Christ. Now, they were proud Roman citizens, remember, they were no one's slaves. But Paul challenges them before he goes any further and he challenges us too. Look, if we're going to do this, if we're going to be good citizens of heaven, we need to fully submit ourselves to Jesus Christ. There's no way to live this life as a Christ follower, my friends. There's no way to do it halfway. You can't have one foot in and one foot out. You can't say, well, I'll do some of this, but some of this is too much to ask. You're either in or you're out. I don't know if you remember reading this, but Christ said it himself. He said, you're either for me or you're against me. We're slaves of Christ, he says. And then Paul launches into this discourse about how he prays for the church. And I want you to see from it how we should pray for the church, I believe. Verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we're going to see that prayer is a priority for Paul here. Notice what he says. Every time I think of you, I thank God for you. And when I pray, I always pray with joy. So I want you to see that priority there. Prayer for the church mattered to Paul. Now, you have to remember that Paul spent his ministry 25 or 30 years just going from city to city, town to town, preaching the gospel, sharing Christ with whoever he had an opportunity to. God used him to plant many churches, to lead probably hundreds and maybe even thousands of people to Christ. But he had this priority of praying for them. And what I want you to see is not only that priority, but see the deep connection and the emotion that Paul has here for this church. The word prayer itself really implies something that arises, a cry that arises from a deep need. It's, it's heartfelt and it's urgent. Have you ever felt an urgency to pray for someone? Maybe you didn't even understand it. Maybe just all of a sudden God brought someone to your heart and you just felt like, I need to pray for this person. That's what Paul is saying here. When I think of you, I feel this urgency to pray for it. Paul was connected to these people. He was concerned about what was happening to them. That in itself is a lesson for us. As a church, 
We need to pray for each other because we are bonded together as part of this body. And also, as we pray for each other, that strengthens our bonds together. I want you to notice here that Paul says, in every prayer of mine, for you all. Paul prayed this way for all of them. Let me ask you a question. Can you pray for everyone in this church? I know that you don't necessarily know everybody by name, and I'm not saying that you pray for every single individual every single time you pray. What I'm saying is this, like Paul said, when God brings them to your mind, can you pray for them? Or is there any reason why you wouldn't pray for them? Paul says, I'm praying this for all of you, not a select few, not just my close friends, not the people who all treat me well and have done nice things for me, but everyone, all of you, I am praying for all of you the exact same way. I want you to notice that as he continues to challenge us here, notice what he says next, I am making my prayer with joy. What does that mean, making my prayer with joy? Well, if you were to dig into this word joy a little bit, and the word grace that we talk about quite a lot, you would find that in the original languages, in the Greek, these two words are almost identical. Joy and grace are almost exactly the same. And when we see the word joy in the New Testament, it really means a gladness because of your awareness of grace. So what does that mean? It means that the act of praying for the church brought joy to Paul because he knew that they had experienced God's grace just like he had. Why does that matter? I'm glad you keep asking these questions because I'd have to stop if you didn't, so thank you. Look at the verse. I'm doing Theology 202 with a group of teenagers on Monday afternoons. Don't forget, tomorrow afternoon, we start up again. And I'm trying to teach them, look at the verse. When I ask you a question, Look at the verse. So I'm going to teach you guys too, okay? When I ask you a question, look at the verse. What does it say? Why does this bring Paul joy? He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now listen to this, because this is for us to learn. Paul prayed for this church and it brought joy to him to pray for this church because they were working together for the sake of the gospel. Okay? He knew that they had a job to do. Remember, what are we calling our series? Citizens of Heaven. If you want to be a citizen of heaven, you have certain responsibilities that go along with that privilege and Paul is praying for them, and it brings joy to him to pray for them because they were working together for the sake of the gospel. Now, did that mean that they always got along? No. I'm just guessing here because I wasn't there, but I'm guessing no. Partially because in Philippians chapter 4, Paul rebukes two of these ladies that were not getting along. So did they always get along? No. Was it always easy? No. Was it always fun? Was it always carefree? Was it always pain-free? 
No. But what you see here is that Paul prayed for them because of what they shared. And it brought joy to Paul's heart because they were in this together. The word partnership there, he said, um, um, it's because of our partnership in the gospel implies what they shared in common. So listen to this, because this is very important for us in the church. If we're going to be citizens of heaven, if we're going to get along together, if we're going to be partners in the gospel, if we're going to do these 15 things that God tells us to do through Paul in this book, this is critical. Paul prayed for them because what they shared in common was greater and more important than their differences. Okay? Now I'm looking here in this room. There's 75 or 80 of you in here. There's a whole bunch of people in number three. There's a whole bunch of people in number two. There's probably some people at home watching this. And guess what? We're all different. And we don't see things all the same way, do we? When you get ready to do something, does everyone around you agree with how you do what you're doing all the time? Mike does, because he's so easy to get along with. I mean, I've talked with Sue about it. He's amazing. But nobody else, right? But Paul prayed for them with joy because what they had in common was far greater than what they didn't. I know you all remember these very special words that we've talked about. Your two special Greek words that you've all memorized and written in the covers of your Bible so that when I refer to them, you remember them and you can say them with me. The first one from 2 Timothy is homologumenos. Remember that one? Homologumenos. What does that mean? It means what we have in common, our common creed. These are the things that we believe. We're all different here. We all think differently. We all have different ideas about this or that or how to do things. But there is a commonality for every one of us who is a Christ follower that we share this creed of what we believe, of who Jesus is, and what he has done for us. And then the other word that we've talked about a couple of times that I've shared with you is sigkakopatheo. Nobody remembers that one. Everybody remembers homologumenos when I say it. They go, oh yeah, that real funny word. The other one was sikakopatheo, and that's also from 2 Timothy chapter 2, and that's when Paul says, we what? Do you remember? We suffer together. And so when Paul thinks of these people, when God brings them to his mind, he says, I thank God for all of you, every time I remember you, and I pray for you with joy. Why? Because we have this homologumenos, we have this, we have this creed that we all share, and we sigkakopatheo, we suffer together. I know when I think about you, when God brings you to my mind, I know that there are things that we hold in common that we believe. It's our partnership together for the gospel. And I'm thankful for it. And it brings me joy. That's why I love to be together with you. Because when I see you, it reminds me that I'm not alone in believing these things. And then sometimes when we get a chance to just step aside in all the hubbub and talk about what's really going on in our lives, I realize 
that you're walking through difficult things too. And we can share those things too, just like we share what we believe. We suffer together. And because of those things, we pray for each other. That's what Paul is saying. Then he goes on in verse 6. If we needed one more reason to pray for each other, let me read it again for you. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We don't just pray for each other because we're thankful for our partnership in the gospel. We don't just pray for each other because we have so much that we believe in common or, or that we are fellow sufferers in this crazy, broken, mixed up, messed up world. But we also pray for each other because we need it. I pray for you because you need it. Because I look at you and I think, man, that dude is a project. Right? That chick is a project. Woo! And you look at me and you think, man, that guy has work to do. And that's true. Every single one of us is a project. But we pray for each other. Why? Because God says... Paul tells us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that God does not start a work in someone without finishing it. That gives us hope, doesn't it, Dan? Hope. Hope, Marlena. Hope that Dan is going to get it together someday. Right? That he who began this work in you at the moment you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, God began to work in your heart. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 says, so that you might become like Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. Are you like Jesus Christ in every way right now? No. Are you more like Jesus Christ than you were a year ago? I hope so. That's because God is working in you. And Paul says, I am praying for you. I am praying for you all. And we need to be praying for each other because God is doing that work. We don't give up on each other because God does not give up on us. Do not write one of your brothers or sisters off because of something that has happened between you or something that's gone on in the past or is going on right now. Do not write your brothers and sisters off, my friends, because Jesus Christ never writes anyone off. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Sometimes I have to tell you this. Some of you know this because it's a part of your life. For some of you, maybe it's not. And that's why we're talking about these things that we are today, that you might be involved in prayer, that you might intercede on behalf of other people, on behalf of this church, in this community. But I have to tell you that sometimes intercessory prayer is disappointing. <laughs> sometimes it's painful. And sometimes there are long stretches when it seems like nothing is happening. We can't always see the change, can we? 
don't give up on each other because God doesn't give up on us. We don't stop praying because he doesn't stop working. Well, I have two minutes to do the second half of my message, so buckle up. It's right for me to feel this way about you all, verse 7, because I hold you in my heart. You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. I, I mean, I've re- I have a little bit of an advantage because I've read this passage about 40 times in the past two weeks. But if you read it, and if you've caught it as I've read it, there is so much emotion and affection in these verses from Paul. He just pours it out of his heart. I feel this way. I hold you in my heart. I yearn for them, for you all. Now, why? Because he knew them all intimately? Because he was best friends with all of them? No, of course not. He couldn't possibly have known them all. He did know a few of them if they were still around from when he'd been there 10 years before. So what was the key? The key is at the end of verse 8 there that I just read for you. The key is the affection of Jesus Christ. The only way that Paul could possibly feel this way about all these people was because he was governed by, he was driven by the love of Christ. That's the only way. Now, it's all well and good for me to get up here and say homo leguminous and sicacopatheo and you know exactly what I mean. And we're all bonded together and we have this partnership and we're all in this and we've got a job to do and we've got to love each other and pray for each other and blah, blah, blah. But the only way that's even possible is that we be driven by the love of Jesus Christ. Because that's the only kind of love that has the scope and I don't know if this is a thing or not, but if it isn't, I'm making it up. The durability that our love needs. Actually, if you've been married here for more than six months, you know what I mean when I'm talking about the durability of love. (laughs) The only way to have the durability of love that we need for each other as we do this together and we live our different lives with all of our different opinions and our different thoughts and our our different perspectives, despite our commonalities, is the love of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, let me read a couple of verses quickly that will sound familiar to probably everyone. This love, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. By the way, resentful means does not keep a record of wrongs. Don't make a list. This kind of love, verse 7, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, we love to read this passage of Scripture at weddings And it's great to read at weddings because we need that love in our marriages for sure. But when Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 14, this is a discourse about the church. He's not talking about marriage. He's talking about the church. The love that the church has to have for each other needs to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. 
It must drive how we feel about each other. Then Paul gives us his actual prayer in verse 9. Just quickly, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. He prays for their love for each other. For God, that is a necessity, certainly. He says, I'm praying that it would abound, that it would just be more and more, that it would exceed and surpass. But we've got to have more than love, Paul says. This love must be got, governed by a knowledge of God's word and the ability to discern what is right and wrong. The word discern there, it's like when you get out of the shower in the morning and the mirror is all fogged up, you know what I mean? And you look in there and you're like, oh, I can't really see myself, but I'm looking okay, and out you go. Paul says, no, no, wipe that mirror off and get a good look and fix that up before you go out there. That's what discern means. It means clear away the haze. Wipe the steam off the mirror, clear the cobwebs, and get a good look at reality. The reality of right and wrong. Paul says we must be praying that we will all be knowledgeable enough about the word of God so that we can be honest with each other. So that we can see the truth of our own sinful, needy hearts. And that we can challenge each other when we fall short which is a difficult thing to do, but so necessary for us together as a church. This is how Paul felt about the church in Philippi. This was Paul's prayer for them. So my question for you is this. How do you feel about this church? Are you praying for this church? Citizen of heaven, Christ follower, God calls us to pray for each other. He calls us to pray for this church. Are you doing it? Are you praying for the church as a whole? Are you praying for Mossbrook Church in this community that we would be a light, that we would be a testimony? Are you praying for the people in front of you, people behind you, Beside you, perhaps first of all you need to ask yourself, how do I feel about the people in front of me and behind me and beside me? How is your love for the body? Let me tell you this, folks. You can't truly and sincerely love Christ and not love his bride the church. Can't say, oh, I love Jesus, but the church, oh man, I can't stand the church. People. You can't do that. Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. And it's our responsibility to love it too and to pray for it. To pray for love, discernment, purity, fruit, daily and weekly. We'll be praying tonight, 6 o'clock, at the admin building. That's how we pray. We pray for the church. We pray for each other. We pray for this community. We need to do that together. You know that this is why Christ came, right? He came 
to redeem us, to build the church, to change our lives. This is what we pray for, and this is what we celebrate at communion. We celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ left his home in glory, came to the earth, lived, died, rose again as a sacrifice for us so that we could be here today, so that we could be citizens of heaven. I want to encourage you this morning to celebrate communion with us if you're a Christ follower. There should be a communion cup in the cup holder of the seat that you're in. I'm going to pray in a moment. After I do, you can eat the bread and then drink the cup when you're ready as the band leads us in worship. But what I want to ask you to do this morning as we do that, we do that as a thank you to the Lord Jesus to celebrate what he's done for us. But as we do, would you pray with me? I'm going to be praying this. I want you to pray this too, where you are. Pray that God would give you a love for the church, a heart for the church, that you might pray for each other. Pray that God would continue his work in this place. Would you do that with me? Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you for the blood that was shed, for his body that was broken, that we might have redemption. Father, would you calm and quiet our hearts together this morning? Would you clear our minds? Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit this morning? And may we be filled not only with a thankfulness, a gratitude for the sacrifice of Christ, but would you fill our hearts with a love for this church, a love for her people. We might pray for your working in us and through us. Change us, Father, we pray. May this observation of communion this morning glorify you and remind us of your love. In Christ's name, amen. We ask this morning that you would knit our hearts together in love. The love of Christ is not irritable or resentful does not keep a record of wrongs. It believes all things. It bears all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Father, thank you for loving us. We love you for you have first loved us. And in turn, let us love each other in such a way that we are motivated to pray, to beg that you would continue your work in us, certainly, that you would complete the work that you have begun in us, but also that you would be at work in our midst as we go out into this community, that we might share Christ with those that are around us. Yes, certainly by our lives, but Father, by our mouths, that we might speak the truth to those who need it. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. It is precious to us. And thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ, which covers our sin. As we go out from this place, remind us that we are residents of this world, but citizens of heaven. May we live in a way that honors you. 
for Christ's sake. Amen. Thanks, folks. I hope you have a great week.